Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett. I'd also like to welcome anybody that's visiting. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, we're in a series uh, this spring and, uh, excuse me, this winter and spring on the second half of the book of Mark. And we're in Mark chapter 11 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 25. You'll find that on page 847 if you're uh, using one of our pew Bibles. I uh, just want to say to Camper, I appreciate Camper's leading us in worship, and I've, I've been sitting here trying to figure out a way that this is going to tie into uh, The Wizard of Oz, and I'm, I'm at a loss, um, but maybe I'll figure that out by second service. Uh, we're talking week in and week out as, as we're looking at uh, the life of Jesus here in the book of Mark, talking about the fact that Jesus is our king. And what that means and what it means for us to live in relationship to Jesus as our king. And we're going to see, um, we're going to see something interesting about Jesus today, something telling about him. Uh, because you can tell something about people by what makes them angry. Um, think about maybe the things that, that, that make you angry. And even to talk about that word for, for some of us will sound so loaded that you, you won't see a place where the words Jesus and angry can go together. Um, and certainly for us, if you're like me, much of our anger is wasted on the wrong things and comes out in all the wrong ways. But there is a, there's a place for anger over the right things focused in the right way. And we're going to see a picture of that from Jesus today. And it opens up a window into something that is obviously very important to Jesus, very important to the heart of God. So let me pray for us and we'll, we'll jump right in with Mark 11. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning, uh, maybe in, in many different places, some of us coming well-rested this morning, ready to listen. Others of us tired for a host of reasons. Uh, some struggling this week, others joyous. Wherever we are, though, we can come before you who can extend your arms and uh, embrace all of us. Uh, those of us who come uh, with eyes on you and hearts of worship, those of us who come skeptical and doubting, hurt even this morning, all of us, would you meet us today? Would you show us the beauty of the gospel? Would you show us the beauty of our Redeemer, Jesus? And it's in his name that we pray expectantly now. Amen. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. <clears throat> Uh, and th this comes immediately after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and he goes out of the city for the night and then comes back in early the next morning. Verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, uh, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seen in the distance of fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. 
Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And it's here for us uh, this morning. This is just one of those uh, strange combinations of, of events in the Gospels. And the more I read the Gospels over the years, the more of these seem strange to me as I kind of scratch my head, at least at first blush, at what Jesus is doing. And, and this is, kind of feels like one of those. You know, what, what is going on here? Well, we're going to see that Jesus in the midst of, as we said, this, this incident where, where something is, is stirred deep within him, where he becomes angry, where he in fact lashes out against something very particular here, uh, something that has to do with worship and the way that is uh, taking place, the way that's playing out uh, in the temple in Jerusalem. So to get our hands around what Jesus is doing here and, and, and what we've got to learn here about worship, we're going to look at three things. We're going to see uh, in this passage a curse and a commotion and a call to worship. Those, those three things. So first, uh, a curse. And our opening scene here, verses 12 through 14, Again, it's the day after Jesus has come as the king into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Feast of Passover. Uh, they have been uh, singing Jesus' praises, and he comes at the very end of the day to the temple, and he looks around to see what's going on here at the place at the heart of Israel's worship. And uh, it just says that it was the end of the day. He looks around, and then he and his disciples walk out and walk out of Jerusalem into a nearby town to spend the night. Uh, kind of this ominous beginning. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen in the morning when Jesus comes out and comes back into Jerusalem? Well, that's what we uh, see here in these verses. He comes back and on his way from this town of Bethany outside of Jerusalem, he, he sees uh, this, this fig tree in the distance and he sees it's got leaves on it. This would have been early spring. And he says he's hungry and he's he goes looking to the fig tree for something to eat. Now, interestingly, Mark also tells us here uh, that you know it was it was before the season of figs, before season before figs are ripe, and yet he comes to it. He sees no figs, uh, and he gets angry, seemingly, and he says, "You know, may no one ever eat from you again." And it's clear to the disciples what he's done. I mean, look down in verse 21 when it comes back to the scene. Peter says, look, that fig tree that you remember that one that you told off yesterday? Well, look, it's, it, it, it's now withered and crumbling. You cursed it and it worked. You know? um, wh- wh- what's going on? It, again, it's one of those strange events. It's, it's the only time we see Jesus doing something miraculous that's actually destructive in nature. Um, and if, if you read this and you feel like it, it feels sort of... Um, just strange and almost, maybe if we're honest with ourselves, sort of beneath Jesus. Like it just feels sort of petty. Like here's Jesus, he's coming. Uh, Maybe he missed breakfast. It says he's hungry. It's the morning. He looks, goes to look for a fig tree and there's nothing there. And Mark even says, but it's not the season for figs. But Jesus gets mad nonetheless. Uh, There there are times around our our house at certain times of day when uh, maybe my temper is a little shorter than it usually is. And eventually at some point Elizabeth will stop me and she'll say, how long has it been since you had something to eat? And I'll go, a, a while. So she'll give me something to eat, and I'm, you know, blood sugar gets back up, and you know, I'm sort of more normal human being to be around. You know, is, that, is that what Jesus is doing? He, he missed his breakfast bar, and now he's upset at you know, this kind of crazy uh, plan. It, it's almost as if, you know, especially because 
Mark points out to us, it's not the season for figs. It's almost as if Jesus is doing what we would do in his situation. Maybe he's on the way from Bethany to Jerusalem and he stops by the, you know, the 7-Eleven. And if, if you remember 7-Eleven, it, it used to stand for the, the hours that the store was open from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. And he looks down at his watch and it's 6 a.m. and he looks at 7-Eleven and he says, curse you for not being open. Even though it's not your uh, published hours of being open. You know, what, what's going on? This has actually made scholars re- really stumble over this passage for, for just those reasons. That Jesus seems so capricious in his anger. In fact, uh, Bertrand Russell, who wrote uh, Philosopher, Mathematician, I think also, if somebody will correct me on that. But he r- wrote a book, uh, a well-known book called Why I Am Not a Christian. And in that book, he points to this episode in the Gospels and, and, and says that this was a, a, a picture of, in his words, vindictive fury by Jesus. And he goes on and says, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some of the other people known to history. He looks at this and says, how would you call this person Savior and Lord? How would you possibly follow him even as a great teacher? It's caused people to stumble. So what's going on? What's going on? You know, is it this sort of uh, unreasonable anger? We, well, there are a few things we need to know. First, we need to know a few things about figs. And I've learned a little bit about figs this week. <laughs> Didn't have this naturally, so I'll pass on what I learned. One is that figs, as is alluded here, figs ripen in the early summer. And it's likely springtime when Jesus goes up around the time of Passover. But he does say that the, the fig tree is in leaf. And fig trees get these uh, buds of what are going to be their fruit, the figs, before the leaves even come out in the spring. And those would have been, uh, th- those were edible. So it, it's possible for a traveler, though a, f- a fig wouldn't be in full fruit, that he could go to one that had leaves on it and expect to see the beginnings of the fruit, something that you could uh, actually eat. And so when Jesus goes and, and sees that, he, it's not like he's saying, oh my, I know it's March, but it should be June. He's looking and saying, here's some sign of growth, some sign of, sign of greenness, and there should be at least the beginnings of fruit here. But there's nothing here. Uh, Jesus is going to this plant, to this fig tree, and noticing this, not simply because he's hungry, though he is. He is doing what the prophets in the Old Testament often do. He is, he is uh, he's living out what's called, an, an, by some, an enacted parable. He's actually doing something symbolic in his actions that would have resonated for uh, his first hearers, and we're going to see resonates for his disciples. Uh, it's, it's not just uh, as uh, strange and random an incident as it first appears. He goes in, to a fig tree. Now, um, in the Old Testament, figs and fig trees were often connected to the people of the nation of Israel. Uh, it's, it's an image that comes up repeatedly in the Old Testament. And what, if you'll notice here what Jesus does and what Mark does with it is he, he splits this conversation about figs, right? We've got a little bit at the beginning, and then we've got Jesus going to the temple, and then we've got a little bit more about figs. If you remember from a year ago when we first started going through Mark, there are several scenes in the book of Mark that are called Markin sandwiches. I promise you I did not make up that term. Um, And those are incidents where Mark, as a storyteller, begins to tell you one story, and he inserts another one, and then he comes back to the original story. And those, the pieces of bread on the sandwich, if you will, uh, interact with what comes in the middle. And those, the, the things that happen on either end help interpret what's happening in the middle of the story. And vice versa, what happens in the center of the story helps you understand what's happening on the margins of the story. So he's choosing a literary technique here. He's taking figs, going into Jerusalem to the temple, and he's talking about figs again. 
He's taking a symbol of the people and nation of Israel and he's going in and talking about the temple and he's coming out and he's saying something about the people and the nation of Israel. What stands at the center of this story? What stands in the middle of the sandwich? What stands at the heart of what Mark's telling us here? Uh, the temple. And so Jesus comes after this moment of cursing uh, of this fig tree. He immediately comes into, second point here, a commotion. First we have uh, him with this fig tree giving a curse. Now a commotion, verses 15 through 19. So we said previously the day before Jesus had come and scouted out the temple, and now he has come back on his first full day in Jerusalem of the, um, of the, the week-long feast of Passover, and he comes directly to the temple. The king has come back, and this is where he chooses to go. Now to get that, we're going to have to understand something about the significance of the temple for the people of Israel. Uh, this, is, this is kind of a, um, it, it maybe a little bit of a, a reach as a comparison, but, but imagine if you have... Uh, a friend or an acquaintance who's coming from another country to the United States. They've never been here before. And you have the opportunity to take them one place that would give them sort of this symbolic representative taste of, of what America is all about or, or maybe what it means to be an American. Now, uh, of, of course, for us living in Williamsburg, we know you take them to Jamestown Island, right? That's where you'd go to teach them about uh, America. But that's not what maybe everybody would say. You know, maybe we could come up with a list of, of places we'd go that would say this sort of encapsulates America. And we might come up with a few ideas, but the list would likely be short. Here's the one I'd throw out of maybe one of the most obvious. Maybe you take them to the Statue of Liberty, right? Maybe you'd say, look, this is a picture of what America is. It's a land that's a melting pot that's made up of immigrants from all over the world. This is a place where for so many of them they were first welcomed to the United States. This is a picture of, of who we are as a people. Well, that's, that's just kind of a dim shadow of what it would mean for the people of Israel to say, let me, let me show you and let me tell you about the temple. Because the temple wasn't just kind of a national landmark for them or, or kind of this symbolic picture of, you know, we, we, we really like to, to welcome people in. The temple was the place where they met with God. It was a place throughout the Old Testament where God said, you know, eventually when you go and settle into the land, you're gonna, I'm going to show you a place and a city and you will build a temple in my name. And that is where and that is the only place where you will go to offer your sacrifices where you'll come to uh, interact as God's people in that part of the ritual worship of God, the temple was someplace unique. Now, uh, plenty of other cultures had their temples that they regarded the same way, but there are not many cultures that said, not only is this where we go to worship our God, this is the only God who exists, the one and only true God. In other words, this temple is the one spot on earth where God has placed his name so that we can come and bring our sacrifices and commune with him. Certainly an Israelite would say we could pray to God anywhere. He's everywhere, but this is his special place where he manifests himself to his people. This is the connecting point in a very special way of every other point in the world. This is it. You see, the temple carried that kind of weight for them. It was the one place where sacrifices could be offered, including the yearly sacrifice once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when the high priest would offer a sin offering for the people in that one day of the year, he would take the blood of that offering into the very center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go and where he could only go one day a year. You see, uh, for the 
Israelites, the temple was this overshadowing reality to their lives. It represented God and his choosing of them as a nation and his special presence among them. It was a picture of everything that meant so much to them. It was not simply like they had this, oh yeah, and we're kind of religious people on the side as well. Uh, it, it, was, it was the pervasive reality of who they were. They were God's people, and this was God's place. You see, the temple had to do for them with the most basic questions of identity. Who are we as human beings? Who is God? How can we connect with him? That's what the temple meant. Now, Jesus walks into the city on this day, and what does he do in the temple? He begins to drive out the merchants. He begins to overturn the tables. There would have been, uh, this, the temple has been turned into this kind of Middle Eastern bazaar right there where uh, worship is meant to be happening. Uh, the temple complex w w was enormous from, from what I read, uh, and the outermost part of it was called uh, the Court of the Gentiles, and that's where Jesus is right now. And one part of the Court of Gentiles are the, the further uh, inner rings of the temple where only Israelites to, can go. But this outer part, this temple, this uh, Court of the Gentiles was about 35 acres worth of land. So it's not just like, you know, he, he's coming to your local supermarket and dealing with the vendors there. He's coming into the middle of this mass market. And this market, what it is doing, it's supporting, in one sense, the worship of God. It's selling the sacrificial animals. If you were coming for Passover and you were coming from days away, you didn't necessarily bring your own lamb to sacrifice. You came and bought one there. And when you came to the temple, part of what you had to do, uh, according to the Old Testament regulations, is you had to pay this temple tax of a shekel. But the problem is, all the Roman shekels had pictures of Caesar on it. And you couldn't bring those into the temple. So you would exchange your money outside the inner part of the temple with these money lenders to give, or money changers to give you uh, a, a shekel of a different denomination that didn't have a picture on it. So it could be used for the temple. And for years and years and years, all this had taken place right outside the temple at the Mount of Olives. But around A.D. 30, Caiaphas, the high priest, brought all of that activity into kind of the inner part of the, uh, where the Gentiles could go, this court of the Gentiles, radically changing worship for them. Okay, now the marketplace had been brought inside. And Jesus comes and says, what? He quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Isaiah 56, 7. He says, look, this was meant to be a house of prayer for all peoples. But you, quoting Jeremiah, says, you have turned it into a den of robbers. You have undermined what this temple is for. You have come and stricken at the very heart of worship and corrupted it. Now, what was Jesus worried about? This was all taking place in kind of the outer precincts of the temple where the Gentiles could go, right? Those people who were unclean, those people from the other nations, those people who were unwilling to go through uh, full dedication to God and become actual proselytes of the God of Israel, but they could come this far. See, Jesus comes there and he says, look, you have driven out the nations from the temple, you have turned away from my calling to you as a people. Remember what he said to Abraham when God first gave the promises to Abraham. He said, you will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And here we have the Israelites turning their back on that calling. We have the rulers of the temple turning their back on that calling when they are excluding the Gentiles from worship. 
This was huge business for them. Uh, the temple at this point is um, still under construction. It's being rebuilt by Herod, and it's becoming incredibly larger than it once was and more magnificent. It wasn't finished until A.D. 66, and Josephus, a uh, uh, Jewish historian of that time, said that in A.D. 66 for Passover, when the temple was actually completed, that that uh, Passover week, that 225,600 lambs were sacrificed in the temple complex. You see, this is an enormous thing that is going on. And Jesus comes and overturns the tables and he says, You have strayed so far. And he looks at them and says, You have kicked out the Gentiles. You have said to them, God is not for you. And you're misrepresenting who I am and what the worship of God is meant to be. Uh, The king, Jesus, comes and he is angry. How did the leaders respond? Remember how they could have responded. Maybe he really is the king. Maybe we really should listen. But instead, what do they do? It says they immediately begin to plot to destroy Jesus. A number of years ago, there was several years ago, there was a, a series of credit card commercials. And um, th- as I remember, these commercials, they'd have like somebody really famous and recognizable that would go to the store to buy something. He'd, he'd hand the teller his credit card that had his name on it. And, the, and, he, and the, the teller would sort of look up at him, be like Michael Jordan or something. He'd look up at him, he'd look down at his card, and he'd say, I- I'm sorry, sir, do you have any, do you have any identification? <laughs> and the guy would go fumbling through his wallet, and the whole shtick was it was this person that anyone would recognize, right? And Jesus comes saying, I am the king, I am here, and I am telling you what is wrong with the temple. And they look at him and say, where's your ID? And they Im- immediately begin to plot to destroy him. After all this, the disciples leave, and the scene in the next morning is they come back to the fig tree, and it is withered. Jesus has said that you are fruitless, and now it is withered. And in between that, he's been to the temple. And this fig tree is pointing us to, it's becoming a symbol here as Jesus uses it, for what has happened to the worship of the temple. He's looked at the temple, and he said, this is dead and lifeless. There is no fruit, and the temple is withering up and disappearing. Jesus is attacking the very heart of Israelite worship, the temple itself, because he said that it is dead and it must be replaced with something else. But if you're an Israelite, you've got this question then. If the temple is where we meet with God and you're saying that it is withered up, then how are we going to do that? And that's where maybe the question hits us as well too. How do we connect with God? How, how, how do we know that he hears our prayers? How, how do we know what pleases him? How, how do we know how we are supposed to connect with him? Maybe you've, uh, you know, you've heard Christians talk about uh, Christianity being about a relationship with God. Well, how is that relationship established? Like, how do, we, how do we taste that? How do we feel it? How do we know that it's really there? Well, the third thing we see here from Jesus is a call to worship. He's saying that there is something more, that there was something missing in their temple worship, but something that is now available to them. And at the heart of it, Jesus is saying this, I am replacing the temple. I am the point of connection now. I am the thing that draws you to God. 
Later in uh, Mark chapter 14, when Jesus is on trial for his life, there are false witnesses that are brought forward that say one thing and another about what Jesus had reportedly said. And said, Mark tells us in chapter 14 that they couldn't even agree with each other, but they did latch on to a fragment of something that was really true that Jesus said. This is in Mark 14. It says, Some of them stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another not made with hands. At his trial, they're saying, look, Jesus said he would destroy the temple. They are misquoting something Jesus actually said that is recorded for us in John chapter 2. When uh, in John's telling, when Jesus does all of this in the temple, and the leaders say, you know, by what authority are you doing this? You know, how, what sign can you show to prove that this is really God's work? And Jesus there in John 2 says, destroy this temple Destroy this temple, not I will destroy this temple, but destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see what Jesus is doing as he comes to the temple. He is speaking about a new temple. He is speaking about something new that will connect us to God. He says, tear down this temple. And they look around thinking it's this building. And what he's really saying, it is my body. This is the connecting place with God. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will build it back. In three days, I will raise it from the dead. In three days, it will come back undestroyable. You see, Jesus knew what we see most clearly in the New Testament, and we see it uh, in one of its clearest places in Hebrews 10, where the author talks about these sacrifices of the Old Testament, and he says, look, Old Testament sacrifices were never enough to forgive us of our sins. They were never enough. Instead, author of Hebrews says they were a yearly reminder of our sins before God and our needing to be cleansed. They were a picture of what was needed, but the sacrifices alone couldn't get us there. They couldn't do what they were supposed to do. They couldn't, they couldn't really cleanse us. They couldn't really change our hearts. They couldn't really ultimately forgive us of our sins. And you see what Jesus does here in this conversation as he, dis, uh, as he takes apart their picture of what the temple was and how one is really supposed to connect with God. He comes and says, it is, it is I. I am the one who will connect you with God. And as he critiques and rejects the temple, he is calling them at the same time to the fulfillment of the temple, to worship in Jesus himself. And that call comes to us as this reversal. Because you notice the whole uh, scene here is of pilgrims coming up to Jerusalem, coming up to the temple for Passover to offer their sacrifices. They're bringing what they have to give to God to God's place in order to come and ask for forgiveness from their sins. And what does Jesus say? He reverses the whole process. When he says in those last few verses, he begins to speak about prayer and connecting with God as he has been pointing to himself as the true temple. The question is no longer, where do we go to worship? Where do we take our sacrifices so God can be pleased with us? Jesus points at himself and says, I am the one true sacrifice. I am God in the flesh. I am the one who has come to forgive your sins. The temple is no longer a building that you come to. The temple is now a person who comes after you. The temple is, and the sacrifices that it represents are now ones that God offers on your behalf, not the ones that you bring on your behalf to God. 
He says, as we see the fullness of this, what we need most is a God, not that we can come and find in one particular locale in the world, but a God who will come and search us out. A God who will come and bring the forgiveness and the healing and the restoration we need right to us. Let me ask you this question. Where, where, where do you go to worship and maybe that's not as obvious a question as it sounds on the surface. What, 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 are, what are you looking to to connect with God? What are you resting in? Where are you, where are you bringing your worship? Where, where, are you, where are you looking for that point of connection with God? Well, we see in Scripture that, um, that real worship, and we see it here, is, is worship that comes to Jesus. And we see three things about it, just very briefly here, in those last few verses there. First, we, we see that worship is wide, that it is deep, and it is transforming. First, it is wide. Remember his critique about the temple. You have excluded the Gentiles. You have said God is our uh, own personal possession, and he does not care about the rest of the world. And what does Jesus come and say? My plan embraces the entire world. I am coming to call people from every tongue and tribe and nation. From the very beginning in his promise to Abraham, he has said, I am coming that I might bring salvation, not simply to one people, but through that one people to the very ends of the world. His desire for worship is wide. John 3.16, you know, God so loved the world. That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus in Luke 19 says, I came to seek and to save the lost. You see, Jesus comes to open the doors wide to the world that the world might come to know him. And for most of us, this point in particular is very good news because we're in fact Gentiles ourselves. And you see that Jesus is saying here that he has opened wide the door of worship for you and for me. That he was not content to have it in one place for one people, but he was throwing the doors wide open so that he could call us in. And he is still on that mission. And he is still bringing this hope and this message and calling for this worship from the very edges to the very edges of the world. It's wide. It's deep. Verse 22, 23, 24 there, he speaks of praying. As these disciples essentially say this, look, if you've taken away the temple... Then, then how do we really connect? And he says, come. Come to God in prayer. He is right there with you. He says, have faith in God, verse 22. Verse 23 and 24, believe when you come to him, not doubting in your heart. What's he saying? He's saying that it is not based in this temple, but you can have the anchor of your soul rest firmly in place in a God who listens to you even now. And Jesus comes saying that to them as the one who is that anchor for them. He says, look. Worship is not just to be in this one place. It is to go deep. It is to go deep into your heart as well. That you could have actually this sort of anchor of your soul even now. That you could have this kind of assurance that God is for you. He has come to bring true worship out of a heart that is really changed. And then lastly and quickly, how does that heart change? Well, we get one picture of this here. Notice what he says. When you come and pray, forgive those who have sinned against you just as your Father forgives you, much like what Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer when he calls us to forgive as we are people who have been forgiven. You see, he comes and he says, when we connect with this kind of worship, with this kind of Jesus, this one who has come and forgiven you, 
Then when you pray, you come and forgive those around you. And by doing that, you connect with and you reflect and you participate in this love of God that has changed you, that has made you into a forgiven person, that you may now go and forgive those around you too. See, he comes into this place of barren worship in the temple and he says, it is about so much more than this. Hearts that are transformed. A new foundation that is found in me, he says, in Jesus, that you might come now and know deep worship, that you might be transformed into someone who really does forgive, that you too, like God, might be someone who has a vision for the mission of God that embraces people from everywhere, that's calling the world to obedience and faith in him. He says, that's what... Jesus says, that's what I've come to do, to bring a whole new kind of worship, one that is centered in me and one that is to go across the world, even to Williamsburg and even right here for us. This is the God who calls us to come and worship, to come and now experience fruitful worship as we've seen this passage here, a curse and a commotion, but even more, a new and renewed call to worship for us. And maybe that'll be the launching point for you this week and uh, your home groups is you, for those of you that are looking at the sermons and talking about this text, what does it mean for us to really worship in light of Jesus? What does it mean for that to really go heart deep? What does it mean for that call to worship to really propel us in the mission around us just as Jesus was? Let's pray.